Hello, I'm Mariette Sneeman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on how to take good care of yourself and others. Today we're looking at can you build psychological well-being through immersion in nature? My guest is Erika Tablanche, positive psychology coach, international endurance athlete, and author from Cape Town. Welcome, Erika. It's so good to have you back on the show. Welcome, Mariette. It's a wonderful and a real privilege to uh, be interviewed by you. Thank you for this opportunity. And to our listeners, after our conversation, Erika will give us her three best tips on running, and then it will be fun question time. Erika, you're a psychologist and a coach, but you're also an international endurance athlete, which means you get to know nature in a sense many of us don't. The deserts, the oceans, the mountains. Please tell us more about this. Sure. Thank you so much, uh, Mariette. And, and I think with most of these things, one has to start right at the beginning. Um, I grew up in a farm in the Free State, in the Orange Free State. And since the youngest age, I had a love affair with nature. And uh, I think the first time I ran away from home, was I was still in diapers. And it took <laughs> the entire community to try and find me um, because I had my first nature immersion experience <laughs> early on. <laughs> and I, I think all my life long, I've experienced a very strong connection with nature and when I couldn't be in nature um, also I felt really not well so lived for a long time in London was very difficult to live there and my endurance sport in a in a way has helped me um, throughout my life to get these huge dollops of uh, nature connection I mean so the one sport that I used to do uh, adventure racing um, is a sport where you immerse yourself literally in wilderness areas like the Drakensberg or any far-flung place where you navigate by map and compass and you're out uh, in nature for five days, five nights, um, most often without any sleep, and you get to kayak uh, crocodile-infested rivers at night. You get to uh, rappel under... 60-meter-high waterfalls, um, also in the dead of night, in the dead of winter. You get to kayak on stormy seas, on rivers in flood. Um, you get to see the moon on a misty plateau in the Drakensberg at 3 a.m. in the morning when a herd of wild horses comes galloping across the marshes. I mean, I, I even I get a little bit emotional even just thinking about the incredible nature moments I've had in my life uh, through through endurance sport and how it fundamentally changed me and and made me more well than if I hadn't had had that. Um, and then, of course, there's all the running in the desert and especially in the Sahara, which is which is almost a holy place in terms of, of really getting immersed in nature and away from, from civilization. Yes, you certainly take it to the extreme, don't you, when immersing yourself in nature? 
<laughs> one doesn't have to do that to get the benefits just mm. by the way mm. but i mean uh, you you're the right person to talk to about it now erica once you mentioned then that even though we may live in cities we have a yearning to be connected to nature do you often mm. see evidence of this sure uh, Mariette, in my coaching practice especially, uh, and especially when I do group coaching, you know, and I often, obviously, I work in corporates and I work with companies and mostly in cities. And then I would uh, ask people when they come into the particular session, the, the session of that day is Nature Connection. And I can see people are like, yeah, they were really on fire for the for the nutrition and for the exercise and for the mental resilience part. But nature connection, they're not so interested. And then in the beginning, I asked them to do a little survey and to rate themselves as to whether they city people or nature people or somewhere in between. And by and large, many people say, oh, no, please, I don't do mud. I'm a city girl and I like my heels and I like the glitz. And absolutely, that's perfectly fine. No problem with that at all. But then we do a meditation exercise where I invite people to just describe their special place and what it may feel like there. What can they feel on their skin? What can they smell? What can they hear? How does it feel? What are people doing there? Are there even people? And Mariette, in 10 years of doing this work, this particular practice, maybe longer, maybe 15 years, and with hundreds and hundreds of people, nobody has ever described Oxford Street, City Centre Johannesburg, or New York. Never. People always describe burbling stream, um, lying under a tree, uh, dappled sunshine, um, sitting on the beach, walking in the mountains, people always describe a nature scape. And when they come out of the meditation, you can almost hear a pin drop in the room because people recognized their longing. And especially if that cord has been severed because people don't get out in nature. You know, very often after this coaching session, I would in the mountains here in Cape Town where I do a lot of the coaching, I would see the particular guy of the course or one of the ladies. I see them in the mountains or um, in the sea, but not alone. They have brought the entire family, their aunts and their uncles. They are taking people into nature with them and especially the children because it's through this meditation exercise that people recognize how deeply we actually need to be connected to nature. And it's it, it ends up being the most moving part of, of the 20-week course where people literally get a lump in their throat when they get this deep visceral um, remembrance and remembering um, and reconnecting to nature. Mm. And why is our connection to nature so important? Sure, there's a lot of science um, around why nature is so important. I mean, there's everything from restoration theory, where people believe that, um, and actually the science shows that the particular elements of nature, novelty, that the information is not arresting in the way that information is in, in our cities, um, and a lot of the, 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 the structural things about nature, far horizons, actually allows for our attention, our mental attention to rest. 
and that it's much more restorative to be in nature um, than in a cityscape. There are even research studies that shows that um, your stress levels, if you do exercise in a city or you do exercise in a naturescape, your stress levels literally drops 50% faster, um, your cortisol and your blood pressure and all the, all the, all the biomarkers of stress improves 50% faster in nature um, exercise than in than city-based exercise. So that's the first reason. So this, this thing about where I just want to mention also the Japanese have been doing this for years and years and years. They call it forest bathing, Shinrin-ku. Their business executives get taken into the forest for two days at a time to immerse themselves in nature, get a get away from uh, their mobile phones and just to absorb the silence of nature. You know, Mariette, there are many things. So when you are in nature, you are much more likely to witness and observe and become mindful of your surroundings. Suddenly a silence begins to descend on you and an inner calm. So it really helps with getting out of stress and getting out of anxiety but I think there's something more than that. I mean, there's more things that the phytonutrients in plants have been shown to help boost our immune system. So there's some biological reasons why it's good for us in nature. But I also think it's because that's where we began to evolve. And, you know, but this is my own theory that, that human beings, we remember nature as the place where we belonged in our most healthy un unadorned states and you know and i and i see this when i take people kayaking in in greece um how the simplicity of returning to nature with so little to defend us against nature about us how we actually then deeply reconnect with the natural rhythms you know the natural psychodian rhythms i mean i'm also just exploring this with you as i sit here i just think about living in cities we have all this natural light. It's abnormal. The moment you go into um, the mountains and you spend three or four days in the mountains, I have seen the most sleep-deprived people with massive sleep problems sleep like babies in the wilderness because um, we don't have this disturbance of uh, artificial lighting. Um so there are so many elements uh, that we can go into why it's important to be in nature. Dr. Richard Love talks about nature deficit disorder, where he directly shows that our children, um, the massive increases in depression, in ADHD and obesity is because our kids are eight times more likely to sit inside a house playing on a screen than they are to play outside in nature. I mean, it's a tragedy of our time that this umbilical cord has to some extent been cut. You explain it so beautifully. And I always think I have no words for what you call the sense of calm that comes to one when you sit in nature, especially, like you said, in the forest, or when you can see far when you're on a, yeah, yeah in the mountains and you can see and it stretches to a far horizon. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is the most beautiful thing that happens parasympathetically in the body. When when you spend time out in nature and you get, I mean, 
there's a lot of theories around why nature restoration is so powerful, but it has a lot to do with this aspect of that nature, um, that the way it catches your attention is not the same way that the advertisements in the tube in London will catch your attention, you know, as you go down the escalators and a million different things try to catch your attention. And I mean, we're in the attention economy in our day and age. That is our biggest resource. And that is what everybody is after to capture our attention. And the moment you step into nature and you step away from your device and you do a connection cleanse, so being always connected to some form of internet, and you do a cleanse like that, I can literally viscerally see the calm emerging in people as the days go by, especially on the kayaking trips. I I sometimes ask people to leave their phones behind. Nobody does in the beginning. Mm. And on the first night of the kayaking trip, you see the tents light up. People are on their phones. Second night, maybe one or two people. Third day, nobody is touching their phones because they've accessed that place of complete and deep inner rest and presence. There's also something about presencing. So when you put all the distractions away and the world around you is not loud, um, you are able to come into the presence of the moment and your life because your life is in this moment. And there's something deeply, deeply calming when you arrive in your life and you're not distracted by other things trying to take you to the past or the future or somewhere else. Thank you. You put it so well. Now, in our previous podcast, we talked about the building blocks of psychological well-being. And I know you have a refined understanding of how nature-based interventions promote these building blocks. And in this podcast, I want to ask you about projects that you are involved in where you help people reconnect with nature to make them stronger and happier. So one of these projects is your outdoor adventure and personal development company, Teach a Girl to Fish, which I know is very close to your heart. Could you tell us more about this? Sure, yes. Um, it's, uh, Teach a Girl to Fish is really a work of love for me. And, you know, this concept started for me, I, I was doing an a Ironman triathlon in Barcelona, Maybe you'll want to cut this piece out, but anyway, I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> so, I was doing an Ironman in Barcelona. So if anybody has done an Ironman, you basically uh, swim four kilometers in the sea, and then you cycle for 180 kilometers, and then you run a marathon, 42 kilometers, all back to back. But the the, the dilemma is on the cycling leg, it's the same on the running leg, but on the cycling leg, you go around and around and around in loops. And after some time, it becomes soul-destroyingly boring <laughs> going around and around. And I'll never forget, I was cycling past a nudist beach in uh, Barcelona. And um, in the distance, I saw a beautiful woman with her back to me on this nudist beach. And she was wearing a Sophia Loren kind of hat, white hat with a black cumber band, um, very elegant. And um, she was the perfect proportion of a human being. And she was holding a fishing rod, Mariette. And I thought, gosh, that's it. 
every woman, no matter whether you posh, whether you glam, whether whatever, it doesn't matter. Every woman should know how to fish. And I remember on the bicycle nodding my head thinking, yep, teach a girl to fish. Mm. And, you know, in that moment, I knew that was something. I knew it. I hadn't even conceptualized the, the kayaking trips in Greece. But the whole idea of teach a girl to fish was this idea of nature-based empowerment where, where women knew how to be in nature in a safe way, in a powerful way, and in a practical way. So I started the business Teach a Girl to Fish, and um, some of it was hiking in uh, Europe. Some of it was based on kayaking in Greece. And then I also had some cycling holidays in Crete um, as well. But the kayaking in Greece became such a powerful conduit that I just let the other, the other modalities fall away. And how Teach a Girl to Fish works is we've got a few kayaks. I never do groups more than eight people. And we go to the Asian Sea on the island of Lesbos, very near Turkey, because Turkey forms a protective barrier um, to the wind and it's a safe strait where I can take people who have never done any kayaking in their entire life before. And we kayak over five days for 80 kilometers, carrying everything we may need on our boats. Most of the people who arrive at this kayaking trip have never, ever held a paddle in their hands. We go from zero to hero over five days. And, you know, there's also something incredible about that coast. Three laureate uh, Greek poets were born on that 80-kilometer strip. I mean, three. <laughs> That's mm. incredible. So there's some magic in the water, in the people, in the place. But when we go on this kayaking trip, I always say to people, only two shoeboxes worth of belongings. And you cannot imagine the resentment in people's eyes when they <laughs> arrive with their trolley suitcases and I reiterate, I'm actually serious, it wasn't a joke, it's two shoeboxes full. At the end of five days, the women, when they get reunited with their suitcases, now the resentment and the slight disbelief is aimed at the suitcase and not mm. me anymore. Because what could possibly be in there that they may need? Mm. You know, oh, so. I can't resist, Erica. What do you put into your two shoeboxes? As little as possible. Oh, as little as possible, because that's the absolute magic of it. Because when you begin to realize a pair of flip-flops, a sarong, um, a costume, uh, one dry pair of clothing to go to a taverna at night. I mean, mm -hmm. that's my beautiful clothes, my clean shorts, my dry shorts, my T-shirt. You don't even need a sweater because it's warm enough. And I sleep in a, in a silk sheet. And that's it. Mm. That's all you need, a little bit of cash and your sunscreen, of course, sunscreen and a hat. But the freedom, Mariette, the freedom that comes from this incredible simplicity when you realize you need so much less to be happy than what we believe and how we overcomplicate our lives in civilization. You know, after five days, there's, um, there's a brute energy that comes free from having dumped the stuff, you know, like a, a vitality that comes through when, when you have just the stuff on your back or on your boat and 
you know you need only that um, one woman who came on the trip, very wealthy, very well healed, well dressed, proper, proper branded handbag. And, and, and I don't even want to name the brand, not, you know, not to uh, create a stereotype at all. But at the end of the trip, she said for six months after that in London, she put a wallet in her back pocket and wore flip flops and cut off jeans. I mean, because something happened for her where the shift the shift from the material to needing little to the emancipation. She said to me, Eric, I realized for the first time that my body is not an ornament. It can do something. It can do stuff. So this deep visceral empowerment aligned with the needing less stuff. And in that a really deep mental resilience emerging in people after, after these five days in this way in nature. You're really whetting my appetite. <laughs> uh, before we get to, to the details and the stories, I know that this nature immersion has a scientific background. Can you tell us mm. more about that? Yeah, so I did in my previous podcast mention that I did a master's degree in positive psychology. Um, and I did my dissertation on what happens on these kayaking trips, you know, from from a scientific perspective, what happens to people and why is it that the experience is so transformative for them and you know when you look at the science of it what emerges is that nature is a very conducive uh, setting for these transformative experiences and for many reasons because um, nature provides a sense of challenge you know when you have paddled across the Asian Sea for five days and sometimes the agency is flat and as still as a mirror the greeks call it nero sandoladi um water like oil some days it looks like the atlantic you know and it can happen while we're on the water and when people have kayaked for those five days and they have managed to to maintain themselves through the ups and downs of this nature immersion and the challenge there is something really powerful that emerges in the sense of self-efficacy. So the, the, the nature as a conducive context um, in terms of the challenge that it provides. Then, of course, nature is a hugely conducive context because of all the health benefits of being out in the sun. You know, 85%, between 65 and 85% of the UK population, and I believe in South Africa, we are not far off. Any kind of society that's office-bound, that m mostly works, lives, and commutes indoors, are vitamin D deficient. And when you're vitamin D deficient, you don't sleep well, your mental health takes a toll, your concentration takes a toll. And when you are for five days on the Asian Sea, suddenly people get that boost of vitamin D. And oh my gosh, they feel incredible. So it's also a conducive context because when you are on these trips, um, because we go to bed when, you know, we, we live in accordance with the natural rhythms of sunrise and sunset, what happens is that it regulates our circadian rhythms to get back into the most optimal state of waking with sunrise and going to bed when the sun is down. So nature becomes this, supercharged environment for um, people to 
to get healthier. And of course, then you throw at it the Mediterranean diet because that's what we eat on these kayaking trips. So suddenly people don't eat any junk. They eat super nutritious food. They in the sun um, during the day and get enough vitamin D. And then we are constantly active. You know, the rhythmic movement of the paddling um, and in this rhythm, constantly moving their bodies, the endorphins that get released from from the physical uh, movement and the anti-depression qualities of regular exercise. So you get that. And then on top of that, you are located in a community of a very small, tightly bound community. And of course, I would make sure that the that the environment and the character of, of this space is loving and supportive and in kindness of each other, um, not judgmental. But what really helps is in a nature context, it's stripped down to the basics. So we hardly see a mirror for five days. We are no longer attached to outer appearances of things. Um, we're all sweating together. We're all swimming together. We're all wild camping together. So you begin to not look at the external, but this nature setting and this back to basics and no mirrors actually helps people to deeply connect with each other in a very profound way and in a way that is um, not very common in our in our lives back home where there's a lot of facade makeup and and all the barriers that we put up in our lives and sometimes for out of necessity but when we're on these kayaking trips nature strips us to the bone it it washes away the facades it creates this uber environment and context for deep connection and of course now you're sitting on the kayaks and you are paddling and very often we are quiet nature creates the space for us to be comfortably um, in silence and you know with the meditation of the paddling and being on the sea with this wide uh, horizon nothing distracting us no cell phones beeping or pinging with notifications and in this quietness, we access that deep calm and an introspection that allows us to evaluate our lives from afar, but without the emotional triggers. So there's a deep restorative calm that comes, a perspective. So nature becomes this uber, uber context for getting life perspective, getting back into your body, reconnecting with yourself reconnecting with others, reconnecting with with your own uh, natural rhythms and circadian um, flow. So yeah, I'm really excited about this because we do not use this barely enough in, in psychology. You know, if I just think of Cape Town where we live with the mountain and the sea, gosh, there is so much we can do more for people's well-being if we could just connect people and bring them into nature. Yeah, and back to the kayaking adventure. How how did you come? How did you happen to choose five days? So uh, that's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting way how the kayaking trip came about. So you know, I'm an author. I am an adventurer. So my one of my favorite things that I love to do was to take a bicycle. I had a little fold-up bicycle. And you would be amazed what distances one could do on a fold-up bicycle in a day. So I would take my fold-up bicycle and I would fly to a Greek island when I lived in the UK. 
And it was really cheap to holiday like that with my camping stuff. And I would arrive on a Greek island and then circumvent it on my little bicycle, camp along the way, and then hop on a ferry. to Because most Greek islands are really small. Um, and then hop on a ferry and circumvent the next island and so forth. And because I love kayaking, whenever there was a kayaking operator, I would get in touch with them and ask them if I could borrow a kayak because, uh, you know, my routine was such that I, I could never go on the organized trips that they had. And mostly they said no, but only in two places uh, in the Ionian Islands and in Lesbos did the two operators give me a kayak to take to take away. And in Lesbos in particular, the the gentleman who lent me a kayak, his name is Nectarios Paraskivedis, the most beautiful Greek man. And the moment the two of us met, we knew that we were actually we may have in another life been siblings because the love was immediate. It was deep and it was lifelong. Nectarios gave me a kayak and he said, Erica, go for it. This is the five day trip that I normally run. And I then argued with him and said, I think he's running. You're running it in the wrong direction because you're running it against the wind. May I borrow the kayak and then I'm going to do it the other way around. Can you fetch me on the other side of the island? Mm. And we had a great old chuckle about that. But um, Nectarios drew, drew the journey for me on a napkin and all the islands that I needed to visit along the way. And he then waved and wished me well. And five days later, uh, Nectarios picked me up. So there was no science behind it. But what is really interesting is on the journey, we break it up a lot. We we go and wild camp, then we come back to civilization. Then we go out into the wilderness again. We come back to civilization and say we eat in a taverna. Then we go out again a little bit into the wilderness and snorkel in a nature reserve far away from anything. And then on the third night, we actually stay in the most beautiful uh, little fisherman's village that you can possibly imagine. But we stay in a little hotel after wild camping for two nights. And Mariette, the really interesting thing is people so look forward to that night because now they're going to get starchy white sheets. They're going to shower, shave, dress into their best clothes, which is, by the way, just a pair of shorts and T-shirt that's not wet. Um, and we're going to go out on the town for dinner. People can't wait to leave Scala Sekamia. It is the most romantic village in the entire world, but there is something about the longing to get back into that simplicity of the wilderness. And it's on the fourth day of the trip where we then head out far, far, far into the wilderness and across open sea straits to these three secluded islands. And when you say Tokmakia in Greek and Greece in Lesbos, you can see immediately in people's eyes the romance. There's something about those three um, far-flung secluded islands. We go and stay on one of the islands. And so on the fifth day, I don't know what it is, but that fourth night, People come loose, they come free. Some take all their clothes off and decide it's going to just be like that. They're not wearing clothes until we get back to civilizations. Some people build totem poles. Some people just journal through the entire night and don't go to sleep. There is something that happens. I don't know what it is, but it is the most beautiful thing of a shedding, shedding away the chains of routine, 
shedding away the the poisons of and there's so much good about civilization i'm not anti-civilization but shedding the things that don't serve us and when we get to that fourth night and when we leave that island on the fifth day it's like a mini uh rebirth that's happened i ran a trip this year and on the fourth day we saw a pod of dolphins and we sat in this pod of dolphins as they were feeding around us uh, in a shoal of fish. And the one girl, I won't say the full sentence, she said uh, a string of profanities and she said, kill me now, because mm. she felt that it was the highest moment of her life. And that's what happens when you get into nature. You can't talk about it. You can't access it in a boardroom. You can't think your way or meditate your way into it. It's deep. It's direct. And five days, it seems, is is a good time for that to happen because it's also a very gentle way to get into the process. I mean, in, in, in Cedarburg, I do it much faster over a two-day period. But then we go into the mountains and we disappear. Um, mm. And you were talking about kayaking across open seas. And you also mentioned that the sea could be quite rough. Which unforeseen events have you experienced? Oh, 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 yeah. So I was hoping people would come on the trip and I'm hoping you would come on the trip. So don't be put off. <laughs> Most of the time, the, the sea is Nero Sandoladi, water like oil. And it's quite incredible when that happens, not a breath of air. But it is also the sea which makes it a true adventure. It's not manicured. It's not controlled. And one year, uh, I was foolish enough to say yes to a group. Um, one of the ladies that worked with me at my company um, had five friends. They All her friends were house, housewives, but they wanted to have a proper reunion. And the lady also had just recently lost her father. So she knew it was going to be a good way for her to just row the, the grief out of her body. Um, and so I agreed uh, to take a trip in may which is not a good time on the asian sea and on the first day the sea was water like oil and i asked the ladies to put their paddles down and just really drink in the moment because i had a sense it was gonna be our last uh, chance to do so and truth bob that night at about midnight um the wind that came up was so strong, it ripped all the tents out of the ground. Um, we actually had to lie on the tents to keep them. We had to carry the kayaks about 50 meters up uh, the shoreline because the sea was becoming so rough that in the end, a storm had broken um, over Lesbos to the extent that the entire beach was washed away around the island. The jetty um, where we moored was washed away. And the sea was so rough for two days that the Navy couldn't fetch us. And we obviously had flights, so people were really worried. But the law of kayaking is if the sea is rough, as long as you're on land, you're safe. And luckily, we had our five days of provision in the boat. And uh, we climbed to the top of this, of this island and found an old dilapidated uh, structure, which was completely rat infested. And one of the ladies had a rat phobia. But Mariette, after two days, that rat-infested house, um, we found an old disused well. We we drew water in, we fashioned buckets with cups. We drew water. By the end of two days, the floor of that structure was washed with shampoo and scrubbed down. There was not a rat in sight. 
We even had a fruit bowl on the table and we had made ourselves a little house uh, against the storm. Um, and after two days at uh, six in the morning, the sea had a whisper of a calming down and we quickly made it over to the mainland by kayak. But that was one of the good stories of, of how it can go wrong, but the incredible resilience that then kicks in and how people rise to the occasion and more than, more than. So those six friends were reunited for life and they still talk about this incredible adventure that they had. Yeah. Yeah, you must please tell us more stories about what the participants experience and what the group experiences, and in, in the end, how it changes these people. Yeah, do, do you know, and what is really interesting is when people come on the trip, um, it is almost exactly their primary concern that is the doorway to their biggest uh, growth. So one lady was really worried about the lack of abolition facilities, she just couldn't get a mind around the fact that actually we are wild camping and we're in the wilderness and abolition is wherever you can find a decent sized rock. So in the end, um, actually she grew in such physical resilience that she also abandoned a lot of her attachment to material stuff and, and really got strong in that way. Some people come on the trip and think they're coming on a holiday and discover that they have neglected a spiritual practice for the longest time. And they then re-access that need to start a spiritual practice, and they go back to London, and, and they take that up again. Other people feel, gosh, they just need to get away from people and society and get some rest. And then they found that they get the deepest reconnection with other people uh, some people feel that they're going through a big transition in their life. Maybe they're getting divorced or they, they're thinking of getting divorced and they feel like they don't belong anywhere. And then during the trip, find that through the meaningful conversations we have around the firelight and the authenticity and the openness, they found, find the deeper sense of belonging. So what very often happens for people is that whatever the shift is that they need to make in their life, they access that uh, through the experience because there's these five elongated days of rhythmic nature immersion that somehow loosens up, I think, our thinking and our feeling and our sensing of what is needed in our lives. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that happens almost for everybody and in fact, it happens for everybody, is this deeply visceral sense of physical empowerment. Gosh, my body could do this. Look what my body did. And actually, many people who come on the trip have never wild camped. Many people have never made a fire. At the end of the trip, ah, one of my best pictures ever is one of the ladies standing at a fire that she's just made, and she's holding aloft a piece of driftwood and she looks like a Viking woman who's just come back from, from the battlefield, you know. And mm. it's that thing that, that people then access their agency and this the sense that they can that they can be empowered in their life back home. So people go back, one lady said, Gosh, I realized I can do something about my life. I have agency. I don't just have to accept things. I can change my life. 
and then went back home and made some very difficult uh, choices and changes that had been weighing on her for years before. I mean, literally when she arrived at the kayaking trip, she looked like she was bearing the mountain atlas on her shoulders. And at the end of the trip, she had thrust the mountain off because she had worked through whatever she needed to um, and come to a decision. So some really profound things happened there. And, you know, I actually tried to um, do a course on the building blocks of happiness on one of these trips. And I designed the entire course when we would do goal setting or meditating or, you know, uh, connecting or whatever. Mariette, when I arrived at the Asian Sea, I tossed it overboard and I just, just let the ocean and that magical shoreline and the sunsets and the sunrises do its work. I didn't need to say a word. I didn't need to facilitate. I didn't need to intervene. And that's the power of nature. Mm. But I suppose you you keep the space for for the people who come along. How do you do that? Yes. So, I mean, indeed, uh, of course. And one creates a kind of a space where one sets an example of authentic conversation. One sets an uh, example of non-judgment. You set an example of compassion. Um, and then you create the relational space where people can show up as their best self because the environment brings it out in them anyway. Um, and it doesn't mean that there aren't arguments on the boats where people go, oh gosh, please paddle on the left and that person doesn't paddle on the left or the steering is a little bit off or whatever. So, I mean, we're still human together. Um, but so you create the relational space. And then also because of these transformative things that happened and kept happening on the kayaking trips at that point i had my master's degree in positive psychology but i knew i needed more um to hold people as they came out of those really immersive and transformative moments in their life so i became a life coach uh, i studied for a, um, at cti and and got a coaching certification so that so that i was enabled to be with people through big transition moments in a way that was not just based on my own experience or just based on how I think is the right way, because <laughs> I think that's dangerous coaching. It's very good to um, to have been trained in that process. And then, of course, there's a lot of group dynamic that goes on, and I did a similar qualification in holding groups and helping the transformation uh, in small and large groups happen. And actually, that's where where I love to work the most um, is working with groups who are in transition because that's where the magic is. And quite often um, when I work with corporates that are visionary and adventurous and willing and ahead of their time, sometimes part of the course, we actually go and climb a mountain together or do some form of nature immersion. And, you know, we together maybe for 12 weeks. It's in those moments of nature immersion that things happen among people between people and within the energy of the group that we couldn't have gotten to even if we did 20 more sessions in the boardroom there's a magic there's a magic about going out in nature and how it shifts people and how it accelerates and deepens um, what is possible you've now mentioned more than one example where the person maybe thought you know, this was going to be different from what it turned out mm. to be. But I still want to ask, if, if someone is drawn to this type of adventure, but they, 
they're really worried that they may not have what mm. it takes. What would you say to them? Sure. I would say, please, 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 it's okay to worry. Just come. Just come. <laughs> because for three reasons. One, this is what I do. For the past 20 years, I've gone to the absolute limit of human and physical endurance. I know where the limit is, and I've done it in nature. So I'm highly qualified to know where the limit is and to not bring us anywhere near a place that is too dangerous. But I'm qualified enough and experienced enough to bring us to a place where there's enough stretch for the magic to happen. So that's number one. So I guess in a nutshell, and it's not out of arrogance, it's out of deep experience, I would have to say, please trust that I am uh, capable to hold that space. It's what I have been doing for the past 20 years. So that's number one. Number two, the whole experience is we are learning slowly, step by step, and it it increases in, in what it asks of you, in, say, in la level of challenge. So basically, you are never going to be challenged to more than what you can do, and we build slowly. We build one one skill on top of another. For example, the first day we kayak only two kilometers. So the whole experience is designed so that it will help you to, to develop the capability in time so that when you need it, it's there. And then the third thing is you are capable of so much more than what you think. And just show up and the rest will take care of itself. Just show up. You know, when people arrive on that shore, when we do the first check-in and the first talking about the paddling styles and security on the boats and so forth and so forth, the first thing I do is to say to people, you have done the hardest bit is behind you to make the decision and to arrive. And congratulations for doing this for yourself. So I think, Mariette, that's say yes more often than you say no, just arrive Worst case scenario, mm -hmm. it's happened in the, I've been running these trips since 2012, the specific ones in Lesbos, and only once has one participant asked after the first day of the first two kilometers, but she wasn't comfortable in the group, um, and I think she was going through a lot of difficulty in her life, and she asked to exit the group, and then all that we do is we paddle to the nearest taverna, we all sit and have a coffee or a nice lunch, I phone a taxi and you don't have to stay in the system. So it's not as if though you are now committed for seven days, six days or five days on the boats. There's always a way out um, and a comfortable way out. So really the risk, the risk is almost zero. It's just a question of making that decision and showing up. Thank you, Erica. And you mentioned the Cedarburg. Are you planning similar projects in yes. South Africa? Yes, so I've already run a few of these uh, in the Cedarburg. And my one course is called Navigate. And normally what I like to do is I like to work with groups of women. I often take uh, mixed groups as well on the kayaking. I take mixed groups. I take families as well. But what very often happens is the dynamic that when the moment uh, um, it's a mixed group, I don't know what happens, and I think it's a deeply socialized response. The women stand back, and the men are chivalrous, and they pull the boats out, and they carry the bags, and the women end up not doing the things they need to do to get that empowerment juice going. So 
In the Cedarburg, I like to take groups of women for the same reason, because we hike deep into the Cedarburg, into the wilderness. And on the way out, I teach people how to use a map and a compass, old school. We obviously have our mobile phones in our back pockets with a very good satellite uh, recognition uh, mapping system. So we never really lost. But then I teach people how to navigate on the way out. In the night, um, as we sit under starlight at crystal pools, we do some goal setting. um, And we have a circle where we really talk and learn from each other. And then the next day, it's graduation time and the group has to navigate us out of the Cedarburg. So to really get a sense, and I call it navigate your life. So that's one adventure that I'm doing. And really more exciting even than that is that recently at the Deutsche German School, I did a motivational talk there, and one of the teachers approached me and asked me to partner her to work with 16 to 18-year-old uh girls in the um, township settlement in Hout Bay to help girls really uh, empower themselves and access their agency in their life. So Mariette, one of my biggest dreams, I can already see it, maybe in three months from now you'll find us on top of Lion's Head, in six months from now you'll find us in the Cedarburg, and God willing, maybe if we find a sponsor, you'll find those girls with me on the Asian Sea um, to access their their agency and their power. Because uh, there's so much research also that shows small interventions of this powerful kind early on in a child's life could really make the biggest difference. It can even bring children who are at risk, children who are at risk of falling off the edge of society into gangsterism or drugs or other uh, problematic uh, behaviors. It brings those kids back from the brink. So there's so much space and opportunity here. And actually, that was my vision for Teacher Girl to Fish originally, um, was to work with this age group um, and to take the kids out there. So fingers crossed it takes off. And I, I know it will. I know it will. It's just a matter of, of timing and getting the right uh, partnerships to work with. Yeah, while you were talking, I got goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's so much. It's just get the kids out. into. You know, every time I see a kid on the mountain, Mariette, when I see a kid on Table Mountain or I see a child hiking up Lion's Head or even running on the promenade, I think there goes one that escaped. There goes one that escaped early pregnancy. There goes one that escaped drugs. There goes one that escaped the gangs. There goes one that just escaped their phone for the past three hours. Hmm. You know, so it's it's so important. And, and the kids are cut off from nature in a way your and my generation has never been. Yes, and that just proves what you're saying about the advantages of being immersed in nature. Absolutely. You know, when I was 15 years old, I went on an outward bound character development course. It was actually boot camp. I think it would be illegal to do that to kids (laughs) nowadays because they actually dropped us off in the middle of nowhere for two days with no food. And I mean, it was my first experience of these. And I believe that that experience shifted my way of being in the world because early on when I was 15 years old, I mean, other things happened in my life as well. But that really gave me a handle on what I can do. And I can do a lot. So that's where it started. It started with that nature immersion space where somebody held the space for me, for me to 
to access that part of myself that has served me for the rest of my life. And that is what I believe we should do for the kids. And it's not hard. It's not hard to do that. Mm. Thank you, Erica. Where can listeners learn more about your work and your book, Run for the Love of Life? Sure. Um, so people can find me on www.thrive-guru.com. There's lots of resources on there, the building blocks of happiness. People can also find me on Instagram, uh, Erica underscore to Blanche. We always post motivational stuff on it, new books coming out, book reviews and so forth. Um, it's definitely worth following that. And then on Facebook, the same under my name. And then there's also a resource called The Thrive Run Club. And on it, I have published uh, a Couch to 3K, Couch to 5K and Couch to 10K running program that I've built out of 20 years of endurance running. This is for absolute beginners to safely get you moving. And it's obviously it's free. So if you want to start a moving practice, go and download it, The Thrive Run Club. Whether it's 3Ks, 5Ks or 10Ks, just get your body moving. And if even better, with somebody else, and even if you want to hit the highest uh, expression of it, go and do it in nature somewhere. So, Mariette, that's, that's where people can find me, book me. And then, of course, uh, Run for the Love of Life is available at Exclusive Books. It's available on Amazon. It's available on publisher.co.za. And, yeah, we've had some really nice reviews back from that. And it's not only about running, right? Gosh, no, no. The, the book should be on in the self-help section. Uh, it should not be in the sporting biography section at all. It's a book about resilience. It's a book about um, overcoming struggle. It's a book about all of us being able to go through the crucibles of, of difficult times and coming out the other side more forged, stronger, better. And as long as we draw a breath that there's always another chance, that's really the essence of the book. So it's not about running. Running is only the carrier um, that makes it adventurous. And it's in multiple locations globally in the Sahara, uh, the Atacama Desert. It's in Turkey. It's, it's shot in Utah and the Grand Canyon. So there's many different locations to make it exciting. But it's really a book about positive psychology, resilience and, and making the best of your life. Thank you. And I think this is the perfect time for you to give us your three best tips on running. You know, if people start running, they think running is just putting one foot in front of the other. It's not really quite like that. I mean, all of us can run, but it's not doesn't mean we run well. So my first tip on running is actually, especially if you start that couch to 3K or 5K or 10K program, slow down. The biggest mistake people make when they begin to run, even if you've run for many years, is running too fast. The top marathoners in the world, and I'm now talking about the top 10 fastest marathoners in the world, do 85 to 90% of their training slowly. Believe it or not, the biggest mistake amateur runners like me do is we run too fast too often. So just slow down, get into the happy juice of running, because that means you will come back tomorrow and do it again. So that's number one. Number two is really look after your posture. 
Imagine yourself as a billiard stick with your head right above your shoulders. Make sure you strike the ground right under your hips. Don't overstride because that's where you break your knees. Even imagine kicking up slightly behind you, but land under your hips. Don't do big steps and overstriding and hitting um, the concrete with your heels first. Your knees will be shot in no time. So make sure that your posture is right. Nice, tall, upright, uh, quick, light um, and upright. And then the third tip for running is, and this is the magic Excalibur of running, and people don't know this, but if you are struggling, especially if you're struggling with injuries, it is most likely because you're overstriding and you're overstriding because your cadence is too low. Cadence means the number of times that your foot strikes the pavement in a minute. Should be about 180. So the way it would sound, if you run, it would sound like, but, 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 but. Most people run, but, 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 but. No, it's but, 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 but. Quick, light feet. Pick up your cadence, get it up to 180 strikes per minute. Um, that's for both legs, 90 on each side. And what will happen is your running will feel easier. Um, you will have less injuries. And actually, you will have more energy later in the run. So just pick up your cadence, those three. Slow down. Make sure that you have a nice upright posture. Don't overstride and pick up your cadence. So, Mariette, that's it. Thank you. That's very clear. May I now ask you a fun question? Sure. Um, I may ask you a fun question after that if there's time. You're welcome. My question is, how would you feel about visiting the moon? (laughs) Uh, Pass. Definitely pass. I'll tell you why. I'm a sun addict. I love the sun. So I love looking at the moon. I'm a water child. I love the moon at a distance. I would much (laughs) prefer. No, I'm a creature of pleasure, believe it or not. I love sunlight, heat, warmth, to be able to swim on this beautiful blue planet of ours. Nope. Somebody else can go to the moon. I'll leave it to to, to everybody else. Because I believe in 20 years we're going to have holidays to the moon probably. Yes, we might. Um, Well, my question to you is related. So my questions are not nearly as inventive as yours. So please forgive me. But I definitely detect a very strong adventurous um, spirit in you. And if you could go and cycle for one year, Okay, and you can also say you don't want to cycle. But if you had to go and cycle for one year somewhere in the world, where would you begin and where would you end? You know, I, don't, I have no idea why, but for me, Thailand comes to mind. Uh, I was very lucky. I was 13 years old when our family went to the East. And yeah. I just fell in love with Thailand. It's not a practical choice because I mean I don't speak the language for instance but now you've been talking about the wholesome food and the different pace of life and I think I would love to be there for for a while perhaps not cycling but walking sounds good to me yeah and and you know it's absolutely fascinating because I I so resonate with that even walking, it doesn't matter. But there's a gentleness in Thailand. And mm. I, I can't remember if it's in this podcast or the other one where we spoke about cycling through Southeast Asia. 
and Thailand was definitely the the top one uh, really? for me. Yes, and you know, and people are like, oh, but it's so commercial. No, it's not commercial at all. The moment you get away from Phuket and mm. and the, the Koh Samui, just go a little bit off path, and what you discover is an unbelievably gentle spirit. I I really love Thailand. So yes, and in the north, the the hiking there. So I hope for you. Maybe one day we'll do an adventure there. Who knows? Who knows? And I think I should go write this down, right? <laughs> because as exactly. you said, sometimes when you write something down, it has a bigger chance of coming through, coming true. Yes, yes, yes. Write it down. Do you know? I have a practice. If there's one thing that's really important to me, um, that's looming in my life for me at the moment, it's the next book, and it's a bit like pregnancy. You can't force it. Mm. But I've I've written on my kitchen wall. Just on top of the zinc, there's a piece of paper stuck that reminds me that this is the goal and that asks some questions so that when I'm doing the washing up or when I'm packing away something, my mind is always subconsciously walking around this particular ideal question choice. Mariette, write it down, put it up where you can see it. I'll see you in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Erica. And thank you for this podcast which which has stimulated my mind in so many ways and has just made me realize that immersion in nature could be as simple as just going to sit outside with bare feet on the grass and just enjoy the sun the sunlight absolutely and thank you for always bringing it back to that because that's exactly it it doesn't have to be big it doesn't have to be somewhere else just get out get a bit of sunlight Go and lie under a dappled tree somewhere. Watch the clouds move through the sky. It's mm. all. It's all that's needed. And and regularly, not once in a blue moon, regularly. Mm. Yeah. Thank you very much. And then to our listeners, thank you for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, please share it with someone you care about. If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in upping your emotional well-being, you're welcome to visit my website, mariettesneyman.co.za, for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.